You're listening to the Rad Podcast. Explore wealth. Different model, a different way, different way of doing business. Mm-hmm. Parts of the country, twenty four seven, seven days a week. I was just done with the gurus. If somebody gives me thirty to fifty thousand dollars, that should be a lifetime relationship for Podcast Nation. Because if you give me that kind of money, I have an obligation, in my opinion, a responsibility to see you. Well, a big thank you to Dutch and Vanessa for inviting us here and giving us the opportunity to share. It's a pleasure to be here. And my dad, um, Tom McPhee, I'm I'm his oldest son, and when he found out that he wasn't going to be able to be here with you today, he asked me and my sister Gracine. Uh, to come in his place. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. But you know, we're here today because many people are running out of money in retirement. And even the people who think that they've saved enough for the future, they find out that taxes, fees, and, and volatility take that money away over time. And so even people who think they've saved enough, they find themselves living on less than they would have preferred to have during that time. But it doesn't have to be that way. At Life Benefits, we teach a formula that helps people to minimize the taxes, the fees, and the volatility, and to keep more of the money that they make so that they can indeed build a sustainable financial foundation. But they don't teach this in school anymore. Uh, they They don't teach good money management. In fact, doctors who have some of the most education in our system are notorious for being some of the worst money managers. It's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> and I should know because my dad is a doctor. In fact, he has two doctorate degrees. He was a chiropractor, and he has a degree, uh, doctorate degree in nutrition as well. And so he worked as a doctor for 25 years of his life. He made l- good money. In fact, you know, a lot of doctors aren't the best business managers, but my dad knew how to build businesses. And so he built four different practices in three different states. He would sell those then and we would move to a new location, he would do it again because he was very good at doing that. So as, we, a, as you go through this process though, you know, um, something that you should know about us is that um, I, I was home educated. My parents wanted us to learn to think differently, uh, both about, uh, about money management and other things. They wanted us to be able to think differently. And my dad was always an out-of-the-box thinker. So as he would build these practices, he would learn something every time that he would put then into, into use in the next practice. The last practice that he built, I remember something happened in 2006. Um, his staff quit right before Christmas. And it was an interesting time. So he called mom on the phone, said, bring down the kids, because how are you going to get new staff two weeks before Christmas? You're going to have to wait until, the, until after Christmas. And so that was our first opportunity working together as a family. And we came in, we ran those two weeks, and Dad started rethinking hiring back as much staff as he needed. It was so fun working together. And so we reevaluated our home education program and figured out how we could work in some work study as well as finishing up our other our requirements. And so that's how we started working together. Um, About the same time, Dad was learning uh, financial principles to be able to keep more of the money that he was making in business. And so he took the, um, he he was applying those in business. We got to be a part of that to see what was happening with that, which was was really cool because we got to be a part of that. So we learned a lot of working with people. And then when he he decided to uh, start teaching his patients about the financial principles that he was learning. He started Life Benefits in 2007. In fact, it was 15 years ago this month 
that he started Life Benefits. He sold his last practice in 2009, and we've been working together as a family, uh, helping people to keep more of the money they make ever since. So, um, people call me the numbers guy at Life Benefits because whenever they need a more extensive analysis or comparison, I'm usually the one that runs those numbers and makes sure the details uh, work out like they would seem in the big picture. My sister, Gracine, she fills a lot of client questions. Um, and if you, in fact, if you go to our YouTube channel on Life, uh, Life Benefits YouTube channel, you'll see Gracine on there. Uh, she answers a lot of the questions through our Question of the Week series. So you can always uh, find that, that right there. But anyway, I tell you that so that you know that both of us have a strong understanding of the strategies that we teach here at Life Benefits and how clients put those strategies into, um, into action and actually get results. So we're going to uh, go in here. The both the, both the uh, weakness and strength in the financial industry is that they can tell you what to do with your money. Uh, you you want to know, you know how much do you need to re for retirement? There's a formula they can calculate that. Um, you want to know what to invest in, they can, you know, you have different investment options available. They can tell you something to do. The problem is, how do you know if it's going to turn out all right in the big picture in the end? And the, an the, the fact is that nobody knows for sure. There's always an, a degree of uncertainty there. But uh, chess grandmaster Josh Whiteskin said, the weakness of an art is in its dogma. And the unwritten dogma in the financial industry is that you have to trust a financial planner or a financial advisor to, to tell you what to do with your money because you don't know enough to do it yourself. And the answer is, uh, we believe, that no one will actually take as good a care of your money as you can do. There might be some knowledge, some education that you need to get along the way in order to do that, but no one's going to take care of your money like you will. And so when we, when we understand that, start looking into into the ways to do that, you know, I think that, I think some of you are probably out of the box thinkers. That's one of the reasons that you're in this room today, getting some of that knowledge and education to figure out what else can I do with my money to keep more of what I make and to, to make a better picture financially. Okay, now we're going to dive in here in just a second to how this applies in the corporate world too and take a lesson from that. But um, we, at the bottom line, we believe in educating you so that you can, um, Understand how the system works and then make the best decisions with your money. Another fallacy that we often see uh, when people are trying to grow and build their wealth is that they think that in order to get upward mobility, to increase, improve their financial position, that they have to take more risk. And to a degree, that's true because it does take some sort of risk to get up off the couch and go do something. You take a risk of failure, perhaps, to do something. But it doesn't apply all the way on up because people start thinking, well, the in, if I want to make more, then I have to take more risk. So more risk equals more reward. That's not true. Because that doesn't mean the more risk that you take, the more reward that you're going to get. Because the, the, the higher risk could also mean that you lose more. And so when you're looking to build a sustainable financial foundation, it helps to use this, uh, this uh, stack of donuts, this child's toy, as an example here. What are the elements that go into building a strong financial foundation? And the first element is what we call protection. This protection might consist of uh, various things. It could be asset protection. It could be term life insurance, disability insurance, things like this. Some form of protection that it should be the first line of protection, first line of defense in your financial foundation. Now, once you have protection, then you can add on savings, and we like to differentiate between 
Savings is just, uh, because most people think of saving as synonymous with investing, right? But we believe there's an important difference, and we, call, we like to call this keeping money. To illustrate that point, let me just say that um, the difference between saving and investing, if you have a pet, do you save that pet or do you keep it? Keeping involves uh, more nurturing. You, you play with the pet, you take it for a walks, so you, you make sure it's groomed and fed. That, that takes an active involvement from you every single day, right? Now, if you save it, you put your pet in the crate, and put it up on the shelf, it's not going to be very long before you have to try to save your pet. <laughs> okay, and the same thing goes with money. We have to keep it, we have to, uh, to take care of it, to make sure it's working uh, the way that it needs to do. Otherwise, we're going to have to try and save it someday. Does that make sense? Okay, so when, you, when we talk about savings, savings can include an element in investing, but at this level, we're talking about keeping money more than we are about the investment level. Now, the next step in this program is that you have to manage debt. Now, there's two different types of debt, and debt is often bandied as a, as a dirty four-letter word, um, and as real estate investors, you'll, you'll all probably understand this more than some people, but there's uh, bad debt is things like credit cards, where you're bleeding to death on things like that. Um, good debt can be debt that you manage. It could be a debt at a good interest rate, maybe on a piece of property that you're working with. That can be a good kind of debt if you have the cash flow, flow to cover it, right? So not all debt is bad, but it does need to be managed. You need to get rid of the bad debt and be able to manage the good debt. And this is an ongoing an ongoing thing. The next level of the sustainable financial foundation is when we come to different types of investments. And there's two different types of investments. Uh, we classify both of these as investments. One looks a little bit more flashy and exciting than the other, right? Okay, but these type of investments that go on first, these are going to be the types of things that you know, you have knowledge about. Okay, maybe that some of the more safe, secure type things. And then there's nothing wrong with these type of investments. They just need to be in the right order in order to keep this whole financial foundation safe and secure. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, of course, many people don't go about it this way. Some people, uh, they start out their financial foundation. They say, well, what would be an investment that might make me some money here? And they'll go after one of these two first. Right? And they'll say, okay, let's put some of this investment on. And I know this is supposed to be a really nice investment, so I'm even going to go out and I'm going to add some debt so I can do a bigger investment in this type of thing. So they put that on there. They say, you know, now that I have this in here, maybe I should think about saving something for the future that's, in, that's liqu liquid. So in case one of these investments goes bad, I have some liquidity to fall back on. So they put some of that on there. And they say, you know, that's, that's maybe not working out. <coughs> Excuse me. It's maybe not working out so well. Let's add another, um, let's, let's add some of these investments on here. So we try some of that. They say, this is kind of precarious here. I need to add some protection. I need to try to add some asset protection and protect this whole thing. And as soon as the market then comes along and starts rocking, what do they lose first? Their protection. They might even lose some of the savings off the top here. And they're stuck with the debt, maybe the investments, that they were try that they're having to try to rebuild from. So this does not make for a sustainable financial foundation. You can see why, right? <coughs> if we get these items in the right order, 
it suddenly all comes into focus. And that's what we're going to talk about right here. Let's take a visit now to the corporate world. This same type of thing happened. Uh, if you look back, uh, 1993, Sean Tolley, Fortune magazine, said the key to creating real wealth, it was a process called economic value that corporations started paying attention to. You can go back and uh, do the research on this. But what happened is corporations like Coca-Cola, thank you, appreciate that, Corporations like Coca-Cola, Briggs & Stratton Engines, Quaker Oats started realizing that there was a cost to using their own capital. And before this, they had, uh, you, you know, whenever they did a bond, uh, a bond raising or they sold stock or they, they borrowed money from a bank, they, they obviously there was a cost associated with that. They had a percentage that they had to figure into their books to make sure that they were still being profitable. But when they used their own money, they didn't pay, they didn't figure any sort of cost attached to that. And this is one of the hardest concepts that we explain to people is when you spend your cash, your own money, there is a cost to doing that because it's the cost of what you could have done with that money if you not spent it or used it for something else. And so that's what we're going to look at here. When these corporations started recognizing this, Coca-Cola, when they started re realizing this, they made different decisions with the way that they were spending their money and the profits on the cost of using their own capital, just the portion of their own capital in their business, their profits on that, on that portion of their uh, income increased two and a half times. Briggs and Stratton Engines, they made started making different business decisions. Instead of making, uh, trying to build, <coughs> excuse me, instead of trying to build everything around their engines, They, um, they started outsourcing their, the making of their piston rings and the mufflers on their engines and all the little different parts around their engines. They started outsourcing that so they didn't have the cost of production, distribution, facilitating the movement of all those, of those parts within their system. <coughs> when they did that, their profits went up. Quaker Oats, they, uh, they, they had started expanding into different types of, um, of products. <coughs> When they recognized the concept of economic value, they scaled back, <laughs> back on that, and they focused on their brands of oats, on, on just selling their oats, because that's where their branding, their brand recognition was, and their profits went up. Investment companies started looking at corporations that were taking economic value in, uh, added into account, and the profits on those companies that they invested in, who were paying attention to this concept, went up. And here's a quote from Nassim Taleb. He wrote a book called The Black Swan, 2007. He said, people do not realize that success consists mainly in avoiding losses, not in trying to drive profits. Fascinating, isn't it? And so it all goes back to getting the order, the, these foundational elements in the right <laughs> order here. <coughs> There's nothing wrong with any of these items. They just need to be in the right order. So here's an example of economic value added. You see in the middle column uh, right here, there's $10,000 that you have that's earning 1.5% interest every year. And you could choose to either use that $10,000 or you could go take a loan for $10,000 at 5%. The payments for that loan are in the left-hand column there. And then right next to it, you have a total of the interest that would be paid on that loan over the next seven years. Now, 
even though the interest rates are quite a bit different there, 1.5% earning versus 5% on the loan, notice how the 1.5% earnings on that 10000 on your $10,000, is nearly, it's, it's a little over half the interest that you ended up paying on the loan because you're paying interest on a decreasing loan balance, whereas the, um, the money that you're earning 1.5% on is compounding on an ever-increasing balance. Okay, so if you could recover a part of that, then in the percentage column, it shows how much of that, how much of the interest you've recovered there. If you could recover a part of that, then that's putting the concept of the economic value that corporations were using into, into action in your personal life as well. There's another way to look at it. You if you put the cash flow that you were paying on the loan, if you didn't actually take the loan, you put that away earning 1.5%, then you could see the amount of interest that would earn over the same time period. And if you could recover some combination of those two, then it's going to put you in a better position to help offset some of the actual costs of capital in your personal financial life. So let's look at uh, some ways of doing that. And there was an article that appeared recently said Americans are saving more for retirement. Are they saving too much? This is uh, an article by Bankrate. It was picked up by Yahoo Finance. And that if you read the article, it's not that Americans were saving too much. It's where they were saving it. Because they were saving it in places that weren't liquid. So they couldn't access it for things. And so then they would have to go and raid their 401k or their IRA and pay the penalty to get the money back out. And so when you, we consider this level, this green level, the savings level, what is it that you're currently keeping of everything that you make right now? And we use a rule of thumb called the 10-20-70 rule. It comes out of the book, The Richest Man in Babylon by George Clayson. It's a really good book. 10% the minimum is the minimum that you should be keeping out of your 100% uh, of your income. 10% is the minimum amount that you want to be keeping. 20% is the maximum that you want to be put, uh, spending on debt service. And 70% then is reserved in this formula for uh, the maximum li limit for living expenses. Now, this is a rule of thumb. So if you look at, if you put your own numbers into this situation and you're only spending 60% on living expenses or only 50%, that's okay. It frees up enough, uh, frees up more for you to save in that case. But you don't want to go above 70% on the living expenses, above 20% for the what you're spending to service your creditors, and you want to be keeping at least 10% of what you make. <coughs> the, next, uh, the next piece of this is where do you put that 10% that you're keeping? If to, to look at this, we're going to go to a chart that looks at the different saving qualities of savings vehicles. And a lot of people... Uh, we interrupt this broadcast to remind you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Rad Podcast. Their savings is money that they're putting into their 401k program, their IRA or Roth. Um, but if you look at the savings qualities, and again, these are not the investment qualities. Okay, so we're going to have some different types of investments up here. We're just looking at the savings qualities and uh, the, the value of liquidity right here. So if you look at the number of positives in this list, there's uh, only a couple. If we scroll this over and we look at some different types of investments, some of these might be great investments, but again, if we're looking at it from a savings quality, you know, how much liquidity does this give you? Again, none of these rank all that high on the list. 
If we look, move over one more step, we have a couple different types of life insurance. Participating whole life insurance is the only one that ranks uh, like eight and a half. It's, it's quite a bit higher than all of those others when you look at the savings qualities of using it as a financial tool here. Now, let's take a look and see how would this work um, if you were to put this tool to work in, in your life. Okay, so let's say that you had a project that you needed to finance $200,000 at 5% for 10 years. Now, if you're going to use life insurance for this type of thing, you're first of all going to have to build up the cash value to be able to take a policy loan for that amount. So cash value has to be accumulated before it can be leveraged. Okay, and then here's an example of what a policy might look like. Now, not all life insurance policies will look like this. Um, in fact, <coughs> if a policy is not well designed, the cash value could be zero in the first year, zero in the second year, and very slow to grow after that. So it has to be designed well. But in this case, this is a well-designed policy where you're putting $20,000 in premium and you have $13,428 of cash value guaranteed. That's the guaranteed cash value, by the way, in the very first year. The death benefit that that bought is $489,000. So if we go down um, to the end of the 10th year now, at this point, you've put $200,000 into the life insurance policy and premiums, and there are $215,000 that's available to borrow. So how much did your insurance cost you at this point? Nothing. Thank you. Yeah, no, nothing. Because you could, you could take the cash value out of the pro policy and walk away at this point, and you, the insurance death benefit you would have had all those years, it would go away if you t took the cash value and walked away, but um, most people don't want to walk away at this point. But yeah, there, there is no cost to the insurance at that point. You have recovered that cost. So let's continue on. You could take, now, uh, to finance your $200,000, you could take it out of this uh, via a policy loan or a withdrawal. And let's take a look at that. Um, once a loan is taken, the cash value will be reduced, the net cash value. But when you take a policy loan, you're not actually taking your money. You're using your policy as collateral, and the insurance company is giving you a loan. So your policy continues to grow, just like there was no loan against it. And you're taking the, the insurance company's money, going to pay them 5%. If we take a look at this, uh, this shows uh, year 10, we stopped the premiums on the policy. Okay, so that, that reduces the death benefit. So it went from 900-some thousand down to 428 again. And the cash value is down to 15000 This is the net cash value. So it shows it reflects the $200,000 loan. Okay, And the paid up, there's a note here, the paid up insurance in the policy is also reduced, it, but it will be restored over time as we pay that loan back. It's also partially reduced because of the fact that we stopped premiums. So that way we have as few cash flows going on as possible uh, while we're doing this comparison here. <coughs> so if we look at the loan repayments now, the traditional loan repayments are on the left, what you would have to pay if uh, this loan was a loan at 5% for 10 years. And then the policy loan is in the center. Now, it's at, <coughs> excuse me, it's at 5% too. So why did we have so few uh, payments? In fact, we're just paying a little bit more than the principal back here. The reason that is is because the policy, in this case, was covering the interest for us out of the dividends. Okay, so we're, so we're using some of the dividends to pay for the interest, and so there's less out-of-pocket cost to us on this example. 
Now, you could pay the interest out of pocket. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. <coughs> you could pay the interest out of pocket. And if you do, then that's $10,000 every year that's no, not paying the interest that's not paying the principal off. You're just that's 5% interest on 200,000 as an interest only loan every single year. Or you could decide that you're not going to pay this loan back. Maybe you took that $200,000 and you made some investment with it, and you want to wait till that investment pays off before you pay the policy loan back. Well, you can do that. And so the far right column shows zero loan repayment uh, for, the, for these 10 years. So let's cover the details now. We leave the totals there. Let's look at some of the results of this. The remaining cash value after the $200,000 policy loan, if we go to year 11, which is the next year after we took the loan, it has grown from that 15000 that was left up to about $49,500. The cash value after you pay off the loan has grown to $335,310. So that means that while you paid the loan off, it grew by $285,000. Okay. Uh, the face value, the death benefit grew during the same time, so it's up 288000 um, If you did the interest-only option, the cash value growth is 191000 the face value growth 183. And if you do no repayment, which was uh, not nothing over there, obviously the cash value is going to grow very little. It does grow a little, <coughs> but your face value, the death benefit would actually go down there in that time. Okay. And then, in this case, premiums would come back after five more years. So if you did that option, you didn't pay anything back, you would need to be prepared to put the money back in, you know, sometime in the next five years. But you have 15 years to work with it there uh, during that time. So that's, those are the numbers on it. Now let's look at the results. <coughs> Unbutton this here, <coughs> a little more comfortable. So. Uh, the traditional loan is in orange, the policy loan is in green, and the interest only is going to be in blue here. So first of all, we're going to look at the net interest paid. In the obviously, with the traditional loan, it's easy to figure the interest. With the policy loan, it is there in the middle of those two, but it's so small because we used the policy to cover the interest, there was, not, there was virtually nothing out of pocket. It was like $68. Uh, then in the interest-only section, we paid a lot more interest because we're not paying any of the principal down. We're paying interest-only every year, so it adds up to be more interest. The principal paid in these cases, uh, the traditional loan, 200000 the policy loan, 200000 The interest-only loan you haven't paid back yet. It's still outstanding. The cash value growth in both of these examples, you can see what it grows by if you do pay off the policy loan and what it grows by when you pay off the interest-only um, the, just the interest-only portion, that the policy continues to grow. Now, the asset value in this case is going to be the same in all three cases, and hopefully the asset that you bought for $200,000 has grown more than that, but we're just going to count it at $200,000. And finally, we have the results. In the on if we combine all of those lines, you can see that there is a net cost to the traditional loan, but because of the policy growth, you not only have your $200,000 back, but you have more on top of that for both the interest-only and the option where you pay off the policy loan. Does that make sense? It's ba basically improving everything that you're doing financially. Now here's an example of a smaller loan, interest only over 10 years. 
Uh, this is a smaller policy as well. This policy has already been established. It was probably a premium of about $5,000 in the early years, but it has dropped down now to about $1,783 or $38 per year. Cash value is at $47,000, so can you take a policy loan for $10,000 against this policy? Sure could. So for this example, uh, we're going to black out the first year premium or the 12th year premium there because that premium is already reflected in the 47000 of cash value that's there for the year. Okay, so now let's take a look at this. The cash value growth over this time, if we, could, if we take the 76000 subtract the forty-seven, it grew by $29,000. Everyone follow? Now, the, the premium that we've been paying for this, though, um, the policy was already established. The 1737 and a few, few odd cents there that we're paying, if we had contributed that annually to an investment, then it would have to earn 14.92% to grow the cash value by that much over these, t over these nine years. That's a pretty good return once the policy is up and going, isn't it? Just by continuing to pay the premium. Here's the interest that you paid over that time period on the loan, and we assume that the loan is paid off in the 10th year, so there's no interest for that year because uh, it's at the beginning of the year, so there's just interest over those nine years. So that's a total of $4,500 in interest, but you're still ahead. You take the uh, policy growth minus the interest paid, you still have a net gain of about $24,000 during this time. Isn't that neat? Now, let's say that you'd taken a policy loan for uh, all 49000 of that. If you did, and you had it outstanding for 20 years, let's say, then the interest on that might be more than the policy growth. And so there is a balance to this. You don't want to put, you know, we have some people come to us and they say, hey, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in, in making this a part of my real estate investing. Maybe I have a chunk of a million dollars. Should I put it all into life insurance and then try to borrow it all out to go invest in real estate for the next 20 years? No. Again, we'll look at an example of that. It's a balance. You would want to get it in there over time, okay? Because if you did that, then there's going to be too much interest expense. <coughs> but kind of to give you an over ide overall idea of how this works at the personal level, um, let's go through this flow real quick. <coughs> if you take 100% of your income, put it into your personal checking account, and then you have lifestyle expenses. Remember the 10-20-70 rule that we talked about earlier. 70% of that would then help with your lifestyle expenses. You also have some protection uh, that is needed down here. So that would be the term life insurance, disability life insurance, things like that. Um, that would also come out of the 70%. Now, over here, we have a money manager account. And this is the terminology that we use, life benefits, for a separate checking account that's separate from your everyday personal checking account so you don't accidentally spend the money that's there. You know that you're managing those funds. So t at least 10% of your income should go over into that account. Or it could also uh, go to, so to whole life insurance, which was kind of a combination of your protection and equity here, these two lower rings. Okay, and part of the 10%, it can even be paid from the money manager account or straight from your personal checking account. Okay, uh, this is, we keep a lot of our emergency funds there and money that we need to be able to uh, keep liquid and access quickly for, uh, for deals that come along. <coughs> Over here, if you have debts, 
then your debts would be over here on this side. You'd want to reserve at least tw uh, about 20% maximum to at least cover the minimum payments on these debts. Okay. Um, if you don't have debts, then hang on. We'll get to uh, we'll get to the next step here in a second. So once you build equity over here, then you can leverage that money and help to pay off your debts faster. Okay, let's say you pay off one debt, you could snowball that to help pay the next one off. And then as you build up more money on this side, then you can borrow to help pay off the second one. Pretty soon, all the bad debts will be paid off. Once they're paid off, then that frees up the 20% cash flow of your cash flow that was going to those debts. That can come back now and fill up your whole life insurance policies if you'd taken any policy loans. And the extra can go to help fill up the, uh, the overflow account, this money manager account over here. And now, once your debts are gone, over here now becomes the expenses and the investments that you can make on this side. So you have extra equity that's over here now, and you could take policy loans or take the extra funds that you have there to make investments. And then the idea is, is that the, uh, the investments will then in turn pay back your, uh, your life insurance and the, the equity that you're keeping liquid over here. So that's kind of over in an overview and maybe a little higher view of how this system can work. Now, a lot of people say that you can do this with your investments alone, that you can, you know, uh, that you can do arrange your asset allocation so you have some invested in stocks, some in real estate, some in fixed income, things like that, but it's still all invested in that case. And so Take a look here. This is a quote from Nassim Taleb. Um, I, should, I should give you a little bit more information about him. He was a trader in 1987. When Black Monday came along in 1987, he made a lot of money because of the strategies that he was using. Uh, he'd used the same strategies then in 01 and 02, and then again in 2008 to make a lot of money. And he, he focuses on extreme events that come along in markets because all the math that they use in figuring out risk tolerance and stress testing and all of that, um, all of that kind of comes crashing down when there's a big, what they call a black swan event that comes along every once in a while. And so he says, uh, with his research in the markets, he, he wrote this in 2007, he said, in the last 50 years, the 10 most extreme days in the financial markets represent half the returns. Think about that for a minute, 10 days in 50 years. Okay, uh, he d gives another example. Of the 500 largest companies in the United States on the S&P 500 in 1957, only 74 were still part of that group 40 years later in 97. So just to give you a visual representation, there would be that many companies to that many. Okay, and so he, the lesson that he takes from this is that we should learn not to use markets as warehouses of value because they do not harbor the certainties that normal citizens can require in spite of the expert opinions. Does this remind you of what we were talking about over here? It's not that the investments are bad, it's just that you need to be in the right proportion, the right order, right? And so the solution that we teach at Life Benefits is to combine the guarantees that you get with whole life insurance to combine those with whatever else that you want to do, whether it's real estate investing, whether it's other types of investments, whatever it is that you do, so that you always have that guaranteed foundation. And that way, when things blow up, you have a little bit of extra time, of, of extra liquidity to tide you over. Maybe it allows you to wait longer or to even go out and buy great deals in a down market and wait for the market to come back. Does that make sense? Okay. And so now let's go through an, a quick example 
Uh, this is a real estate investing example that uh, we combined from a number of our clients that have done some things um, in, this, in this area. Uh, this they had one and a half million dollars that they need to keep liquid, and it's only earning a paltry half percent uh, here in the bank. But they need to keep this money liquid to help with their deals. So let's think of this now as two brothers or two sisters, okay, that are going through. I, I did actually use a male age 50 here, so we'll think of it as two brothers. Uh, one brother decides he's not going to do the life insurance part. He has one and a half million half a percent interest, he's going to do all these, uh, the, these deals that we're going to look at here. And then we have the other brother who says, you know, I really want to start uh, harnessing the power of life insurance to add a power play to whatever I'm doing financially. So here's the, the brother that's going to do the life insurance. He's going to do this slowly over time. Notice he's not putting one and a half million dollars into this to start out with, but he's starting with 100000 a year, which is very modest considering the one and a half million that he's keeping liquid. So the premiums are here on the left. We have guaranteed cash value and death benefit. We have projected cash values and death benefit. I think Gracine's going to talk a little bit more about the difference between these two in her section here on the life insurance. But uh, this is what the policy numbers are looking like. And then both of these brothers make the same uh, investments in real estate. So we have one investment here. This is for appreciation. You can see some of the details on it. Then we have an example, an investment that was made to fix the cash flow on a property and sell it. Again, so the cash flow was very low here, obviously, but they think they can get it up a little bit higher and then sell it. Uh, investment number three, <coughs> this was done on cash flow. This is a already a well cash flowing property, and so it makes sense to keep this property. Uh, this is a fix it, <laughs> fix it up property, fix and flip. Um, obviously, this one has a net negative monthly cash flow because of the money they plan to put into it, okay? And then here is a private lending example where they're simply um, lending the $600,000 while, the, while the investor is waiting for bank approval on the loan, and then that loan returns in eight months, and they get a nice little return on that. <coughs> so if we put this all together, these are the two brothers compared. Uh, the orange one is the traditional option, which is uh, using no, um, use not using the life insurance. They're just using that bank account that's earning half a percent interest. And the blue uh, line is the brother that's purchasing the life insurance. And notice, because of the cost of life insurance, the blue line starts out lower. Okay, and it's lower until about year seven or eight right here when it crosses over. And then it ends up higher at 10 years here. It's about $60,000 higher. I had the uh, numbers uh, on there, but they uh, looks like they did kind of crazy things here on this uh, <laughs> this slide when we converted it to Keynote. So um, what what happens here though is you're right about 1.1 million right here. If we go to ten the tenth year, it's about 1.2 right here. The both of these numbers are starting out. But if we go to the next slide, this is just the difference of the life insurance over the next 20 years, and the the numbers are all over that but you can see the orange line and the blue line behind it. It's like a million dollars difference at the end of 30 years. And the only difference there is because of the growth of the life insurance during that time. They made the exact same investments, had the identical cash flow otherwise. The, uh, the guy that's using the life insurance, he had to dip into his policy loans a few times, so there's some interest that's calculated into that. But that's still a really nice, a really nice growth over all this time. And 
the, the brother with the life insurance has a legacy to go with this as well. The guaranteed death benefit is in dark blue, and the non-guaranteed one, if he gets to share in some of the profits of the life insurance company, uh, is in the green there. And that death benefit is kind of like a bonus thrown in because we didn't calculate any additional cost for that thrown in. There's a couple more things that I want to go through here with you. Uh, the volume of interest is an interesting thing. As real estate investors, you guys probably understand this. Uh, $250,000 home at 5% APR, 30 years. Uh, the payment is th uh, $1,342 per month. 360 months, that's going to be total payments of $483,000 if you keep the mortgage the entire time, right? Uh, principal is 250, so you end up paying quite a bit more in interest than just 5% on the total balance. Okay, so the volume of interest in this case is 48%. Now, for you investors that are keeping it, maybe keep maybe not keeping the property the full term, if you're keeping it only five years, then it gets a little bit worse, right? You have the payment, you have 60 uh, 60 payment 60 of those payments comes out to $80,000, but the principal paid in the first five years is only 20,428. So 60,000 of that was interest. Now it's not necessarily a bad thing, you just have to understand how, the, how that's working, right? So that's a total volume of interest of 75% during those first five years. And so it's far cry from 5%, but this is help, the volume of interest happens over a long period of time. And this is helpful to, to recognize as you're working with, um, with, with your life insurance policies, because if you're gonna, if you're gonna be saving a little bit, kind of like that example that we looked at with economic value added, it's helpful to understand how the volume of interest and also what's called velocity of money works. And that's what we're gonna take a look at next. Velocity of money is how quickly you can use the money over again. And you guys are probably familiar with this one as well. But I just wanted to show you an example of how it would work, how the velocity of money would work with a life insurance example here. So you have the insurance company, you have you, obviously. Um, let's say you take $20,000 policy loan over here, and you have a lease-to-own opportunity here that you could buy out for $20,000. And maybe you're going to have to pay $500 a month back on that. So you go ahead and pay $500 a month back to you over five years. Okay, so after six months, how much, is, how much are you going to have back in your own account? $500 a month times six months. 3000 You got it. So now, let's say that you have another opportunity come up to uh, some contractor expenses. If you prepay them, then you get a 10% discount. Okay, so you take the 3000 uh, you put $2,700 over to those contractor expenses, and you save the 300 and maybe you pay those back $500 a month for six months. So at the end of 12 months, you're now putting, you're now sending yourself back $1,000 a month between these two loans. How much are you going to have in six more months? $6,000 on top of the $300 you already have. Yes, so it's going to be $6,300. And then we're now at the end of the year. If you still have the loan outstanding with the insurance company, they're going to ask for another year of interest, which will be $1,000. We interrupt this broadcast to remind you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Rad $6,300 that you have here. So you pay $1,000 back to the insurance company. Now, here's a cool part. If you took the loan from the insurance company for a business purpose or investment purpose, then that's a tax deduction for that interest, right? 
you're in a 24% tax bracket, that represents about $240 of taxes saved right there. So if we add this up, let's say that uh, you still have another $5,300 here. Let's say that you have some business equipment you want to buy. So you go ahead and you pay that money to buy the business equipment. Maybe you're going to pay it back $915 a month for six months. <coughs> but you haven't done that yet. Let's take an, exam uh, uh, an example, a snapshot here at 12 months and see what's happened. The money that you've used, you started with the $20,000 that you used. So we put that down here. And then you used another $2,700 for the contractor expenses, and you bought $5,300 of business equipment. So you started with $20,000 here, but you've been able to use $28,000 over the course of this year. Does that make sense? That's a 40% increase in the seed money that you started with. Now, on the volume of interest side, um, you have the money that you saved on the lease-to-own option, which if we look at the amortization schedule here, you can see we figure out the interest on that is $3,100 for the year. And you have the $300 that you saved on the contractor expenses. You haven't saved anything on the business equipment yet, but we can add the other $240 that you saved on taxes. We add all that up, that's $3,728 that you've recovered uh, of money that would have gone to Uncle Sam or to the banks. Okay, minus, of course, the $1,000 of interest that you paid to the insurance company. So when you put all that together, your net profit is about $2,728 for the year, which if you divide that into the original $20,000, then that comes up with about a 13.64% return on your seed money within 12 months. So that's velocity of money working to you. When we first started this, our family, um, we had a number of expenses that Dad used the velocity of money on very quickly. He had taxes, a, a bigger than expected tax bill, that needed to be paid. And then we had some family expenses that he used. Um, that and so even though we started with a $30,000 a year policy, uh, we were able to finance several things within that first year uh, beyond just that amount. Okay, so kind of as an overview, uh, the life benefits formula starts with keeping and controlling more of your money. Then we can look at managing that money wisely and investing. And the third element, which we haven't touched on too much today, is the passive income component, because it gives you more options when it comes time for passive income, and also the legacy component, which is the death benefit, of course. And so basically, what the life insurance allows you to do is it adds a power play on everything that you do financially. And so I, I have some notes here as well. It could, the, bi the big thing is that your money can do more than one thing at once while you're using it. It's growing, the life insurance policy is growing while you still get to use the money and you get the death benefit from it. Um, there are some other benefits as well, like it adds balance when you're looking at your overall asset allocation in a portfolio. If you have money in life insurance, then that's stable and guaranteed. It can maybe allow you to take more risks on the part of the portfolio that you're investing. So th things like that, it gives you more options. gives you more options when it comes time to deciding whether you want to use an annuity or simply withdraw the money for passive income in the future. And of course, it multiplies your legacy. Now, some people think that you can build this type of system using universal life insurance just as easily as you can with whole life insurance. But there's a big difference between the, the ways that the different life insurance products work. And I'm going to invite my sister, Gracine, to come up here now and to share about the different types of life insurance. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.
So there are two main types of life insurance. There is permanent insurance and there is temporary insurance or as we know it, term insurance. Uh, under the permanent category, we have a couple different types of permanent insurance. So we have the whole life insurance, which Dutch mentioned a little bit earlier, and we have the universal life insurance. There's a big difference between these insurances, and we've talked about using a policy, so what makes using the permanent life insurance, the whole life insurance, better? Why can't we use the universal, or what even? why not even the term? The term is much less expensive, right? So why can't we use the term? So we're going to go through these insurances, talk about how they work, and why we use the type of insurance, the whole life insurance, like we do. So the first type of uh, term insurance that we're going to talk about is the one-year renewable term. There's two types of term insurance, the one-year renewable and the level premium. The term insurance is specifically designed to pay a death benefit upon the death of the insured, and it covers a certain term or period of years. So it's not a permanent product, it's a temporary product, but the term uh, can either be for one year, for five years, 10, 15, 20, or 30. So let's take a look and see how it works. So term insurance has a death benefit that uh, will be based on your age and uh, how much money you're going to spend for the death benefit. So while you're at a young age, the premiums will be very, very small for a term policy because it's only a certain amount of time that we plan to keep it. So the younger you are, the better the premium, the higher the death benefit you can have. So we're going to have age on the bottom, premiums on the side here, and then this blue background will represent our death benefit. Now we have premiums for the policy, and term insurance is unique in that the premiums step up year by year. So here's the depiction of that. This specifically, this picture right here is the one-year renewable term insurance because every year that we go to renew, it steps up a little bit, the premiums, based on our age. Uh, since we get older each year, the premium increases each year. Five-year, uh, sometimes there's five-year renewable as well. It works very similar to this, so it would be level for five years, then step up for five years, then step up again in five years. But one year or five year, it, it performs very much like this. Now, there's level term insurance, and that, is, uh, that comes available in 10, 15, 20, and 30-year increments. So the level term insurance starts out with a little bit higher premium initially, but they say, but because we're charging you a little bit more now, we're going to keep it level for however many years you're going to buy this policy, whether it's 10, 15, 20, or 30. So you're going to have a bigger savings overall. And that's depicted here. So we have the premiums coming along. You can see when this orange, uh, this orange section ends, look at where we would have been on the one-year renewable term chart. Because the level premium saves us overall, but then as soon as we're finished with that level period, we have the option to renew at whatever rates we would have been had we been paying this policy on a year-by-year -year basis. And that's the level premium term insurance. So that's how the term works, and the term doesn't build any sort of cash value inside of it. It's just premiums that you're exchanging for the death benefit component. So that's why it's temporary. That's why we don't use it to build value. It doesn't build value. It's just kind of a temporary holding place to give us insurance so that if something happened to us, we would leave our family in a better position or cover expenses that we have so that others aren't indebted to those expenses when we die. Here is the 
uh, chart for the term insurance uh, so that you can kind of see how this works in chart format. So over on the right here, we have the guaranteed annual premium and the guaranteed death benefit. In this particular scenario, we're using 1.5 million. And so this person was 45 years old when they purchased the policy and it was $1,324 per year. They keep that premium level for 10 years. This is a 10-year policy. And then notice as soon as that premium uh, goes to year 11, what happens to it? It goes from 1,300 to about 23,000. And that's typical because we've ended that level premium period and we've jumped into the one-year renewable rates. Uh, if we go farther down to when we're 70 years old, if this is our policy, then we would have to pay uh, $84,000 per year just to keep this policy alive. And that would go up again next year. By the time we're 90, it's uh, over a million dollars to keep a $1,500,000 benefit. So this is why people do not pay their policies, and we don't recommend them to pay term policies after they reach that expiration of the level period. So keep this picture in your mind, keep this chart in your mind, because it's going to come, come in uh, useful when we talk about this next type of insurance, which is the universal life insurance. Now, universal life insurance also pays a death benefit. It's the combination of term insurance for that low cost, and then it also has a cash value element that will build in value over the years. So lots of people, when they hear about, you know, kind of what we do, they, they want to know, well, can I, can I use this with universal life insurance? And we're going to answer that because we're going to look at how the universal life insurance works and see if it's a good candidate for doing what John just talked about with life insurance. So universal life insurance uh, starts out with the death benefit and it has a cash value or cash account that builds value. For this, they say uh, universal so you can have flexible premiums. Okay, so some years you may not be able to pay as much, so there's the cash component and we have some flexible premiums. Some years, you know, you might have uh, some other deal going on and you, you want to pay less in premiums, that's fine, this policy will accommodate that. So flexibility, you have that. Now let's take a look and see what the, how it kind of works internally, how the insurance company is using the money when it comes into the policy so that we can see what's happening behind the scenes. So in the universal life insurance policy, we pay a premium and it goes directly into the cash account. Then from the cash account, the insurance company takes that money, and if we're in uh, an indexed universal product, so, uh, they used to call them equity indexed, uh, so some type of index product, then it's going into accounts that mirror an index. So it's investing in index mirroring accounts, it's not actually in the index itself. So the money goes into these mirroring accounts. If we're talking variable, universal life insurance, it actually does go into investments over here. So the universal, uh, the policies or money is invested into either actual investments or index mirroring accounts, and then the returns come back into the cash account. From the cash account then is paid any fees or surrender charges that the policy has. And universal policies have fees and surrender charges and they come directly out of the cash account. Then and then, after all this has taken place, the insurance company pays the premium to buy the death benefit, to reserve the death benefit. So your premium goes to the insurance company, they do all of this uh, behind the scenes, and then they secure your death benefit, okay? How do these policies actually perform in real life? Well, we've been in business for 15 years and have had several chances to look at multiple universal life policies, so we kind of have a good idea about how they work. Just recently, we were able to uh, 
review a policy that's about 40 years old. So this is the like the earliest stages of the universal life insurance. It came available in 1979. That's when they made universal insurance. So this 40-year-old policy is pretty close to one of the earliest ones. And this is consistently what we see, uh, how we see these policies perform. A death benefit and a cash account <coughs> and flexible premiums. So you might be asking, well, okay, this, this picture looks different than what we just saw. The cash account started growing, th then it dropped off, and then we have flexible premiums, and then suddenly they're rising. What's up with this? And it all has to do with what's happening behind the scenes with, remember, Universal Life Insurance has term insurance built into it. That's the chassis that it's built on. And so we can have the low cost of term insurance for the early years, but it's buying one-year renewable term insurance, which we know now is the most expensive type of term insurance. It's going to increase in premium each year. What happens when the policy or the, the money coming from the cash account going into those index mirroring accounts, what happens when they don't bring in enough uh, returns or the premium that you're paying isn't enough to sustain that cash account? The premiums for the term policy part are coming from that cash account each year. And so as the term insurance increases in this policy, the premium on the term insurance increase, you might not be increasing what you're paying, but the insurance company's having that increased cost. And if it doesn't get paid through the cash account, and the cash account gets depleted, then they start asking you for it. And if you don't pay it, which I wouldn't blame you if you didn't want to pay it, the death benefit goes away. And then what are you left with? No cash account, or a cash account that has no value, and just premiums that you've paid for years and years. This is why we don't use universal life insurance. Now let's take a look at it in chart format so that you can actually see these numbers th that I'm talking about. So on the right-hand side of the screen, we have guaranteed assumptions, and on the, or sorry, the left-hand side, we have guaranteed assumptions. On the right-hand side, we have non-guaranteed assumptions. And the difference in this is that on the left side with the guarantees, the insurance company says, if you pay this premium, this is what we guarantee. You do this and we do this. On the right-hand side, those are the non-guarantees. So they say, if when the, the money goes and invests in those mirroring accounts, or if you've got the variable product into the actual investments, if when it does that, it brings in a 6.63% return, then we, can guarantee, well then we can probably offer this on the right-hand side. But they don't guarantee those returns because statistically those returns are all over the board. So they, they can't give a good guarantee on that. So they say, we can guarantee what's on the left, but we can't guarantee what's on the right. That's potential. So on the left, we're going to focus on what's happening here. Well, here's this person's 83 years old. The policy itself is 32 years old. And uh, guaranteed, coverage terminates prior to this date. That's in the guaranteed language of this policy. So when the person bought it, they had the guarantee that this policy is going to lapse before they, you know, before they reach age 83. Okay, now, this might just be me, but when we're 83 years old, isn't that kind of the time that we would want some permanent life insurance? Probably more than right now, right? I don't think any of us plan to die right now. I should hope not. <laughs> but when we get into our 80s and stuff, that's probably more of a reality for us. 
And so it would be nice to be able to count on something rather than having terminology in the contract that says coverage terminates prior to this date, don't you think? So now we'll do a little recap. So far, this policy has cost this person uh, $537,000 in premiums. So she had it for 32 years. Uh, the account value after 32 years is zero because the cash account went away. The surrender value, well, she can't even surrender and get money out, so that's zero too. There's nothing left in the policy. And the death benefit is zero. So how much did it cost? She's out half a million dollars with nothing to show for it. So now let's talk about the whole life insurance. And this is why we use whole life insurance. So whole life insurance uh, offers the protection of a death benefit that will pay to the beneficiaries when the insured dies and it provides a cash value. Here's a depiction of this. So this is the death benefit, this blue area for whole life insurance and the cash value starts out small and grows to equal the death benefit by definition of whole life insurance. It will equal the death benefit at maturity. Now maturity for these policies is either age 100 or age 121. It depends on when you purchase the policy. The insurance company changed it a little bit because people were living longer. And then for these, for this policy, we have a premium that's level and guaranteed set for life. Won't go up, won't go down. So whole life insurance kind of got a bad name because as you can see, the cash value does accumulate, but it takes a long time to get there. And so people were like, well, I'll buy this whole life insurance because I want the protection for my family, so I'll just sort of set it and forget about it. There's nothing really I can do with it while I have it. So it kind of got a bad name as being super expensive and not usable till you die. That is until we started being able to add a paid up additions rider onto the policies. And I'll abbreviate that to PUA. Now what does a PUA rider do? Well first it allows us to lower the death or to lower the premium. So we can have a much lower level premium for life. But then it also allows us to add more premium in the early years of the policy. So we're going to, to make those premiums a little bigger in the early years and then drop them down and keep them nice and small for the rest of the policy's life. And when we do that, it allows the cash value to jumpstart and start right away with some cash value that will eventually end up in the same place the policy would have been with cash value equaling the death benefit of maturity, but it gives us growth in between there that normally we wouldn't be able to get. So that's the paid up additions rider, PUA rider, that's what made life insurance special, the whole life insurance special, and this is why we use it. So now let's take a look at it in chart format. Over on the left, we have the guaranteed values, and on the right, we have the non-guarantees. Now you can see in the first year of this policy, this person's paying $20,000, and this is on a 40-year-old. So at the end of uh, year one, he'll be 42, which is why it or 41, which is why it shows 41 there. $20,000 he's paying each year, you can see, until year eight when that drops down. And the difference in the 20,000 and the 7,800 that's left is the paid up additions rider. We kick-started it with that, and then we let that fall away because we don't need it after a certain amount of time. No notice, the policy has cash value in year one as well, and that's money that he could take out and use uh, if he wanted to for any type of opportunity. The insurance company does not put a limit on what you can use the funds for. Uh, there's no pre-qualifications. All you have to do is sign a paper, say, I'd like the money, and they'll send it. 
Over on the right-hand side of the screen, we have the non-guarantees, and the only reason these numbers are over here and they can't be in the guarantees is because of this little column called the annual dividend. Now, we write policies with mutual companies that are participating companies, and so that means they don't have stockholders, they have policyholders that own the company. So when we purchase a whole life insurance policy with one of these companies, we become a part owner of the company. And so the way that their, their company contracts are written is that when they earn a profit, they have to share it with all their owners. And that's the form of a dividend. So dividends increase, the older a policy is, obviously you're, you own more of the insurance company because you've paid more in premium. Uh, so they start out small, dividends start out small and conservative, and then they get larger each year. And unlike the universal policies that show you know, a, an interest rate that you may or may not be able to get, the dividends are fairly conservative. So the insurance companies don't want to be putting something out there that they know they can't meet. So statistically, these dividends are pretty conservative and something that we can, you know, we can count on that, that they might be there. They're not there until they're actually paid, but we can kind of count on them to be there. Now, the difference in the cash value here on the non-guaranteed versus the cash value on the guaranteed side is just the adding of that dividend column to the cash value. Okay, so when a dividend is paid, it goes into your cash value and becomes available to you. Once a dividend is paid, it cannot be taken away. Those non-guaranteed numbers become your new guarantees. And the death benefit also grows with the dividend. So now, we want to take a look at the later years of this policy, because this only shows the first 25. And as you know, in the universal life policy, it lapsed in the later years. So here are some later years of the policy. Oh, we have some zeros on this page now. So let's figure out what those mean. Okay, these zeros here, starting in uh, year 36 when he is 76, uh, this just means that the policy is no longer accepting premiums, so it no longer has a premium. That's fine. Cash value is still there. You can see death benefit is still there right next to it. On the next side, we have zeros in the non-guaranteed column. Again, that's just reflecting the premium. That's reflecting premium out of pocket, and then right here, reflecting money going into the policy, which is zero. And then we have this column that's all zeros, and that's simply because we didn't illustrate any loans coming out of this policy. So they're assuming no loans at all, so they put those zeros. Okay, so now let's do a comparison on this policy. We did it on the universal life policy. Let's do it on this one by the time we stop premiums. So total premiums paid on this policy are 359,000. The cash value at this point is 586,000 and the death benefit is 880,000. If you could put this money into a policy like this and have a return of 586, how often would you want to continue doing that? I mean, is that a good deal or a bad deal? It's a good deal. Good deal. <laughs> and then here's the final years of the policy just to finish out to age 121. The cash value continues to grow and you can see the very last year there, 121, it equals the death benefit. By definition, it has to. It's a whole life policy. So that's why we use the whole life insurance. It allows us to get that cash value. It allows us to use it for any opportunity that we may have that can come along. If we don't have opportunities, it's a great place to keep it because it will continue to grow. 
And if the policy performs with the dividends the way that they are projecting it might, we can see those numbers would be higher. But a good rule of thumb is that if you're not going to be happy with the guarantees, never buy something on the chance of the non-guarantees doing better. So if you're not happy with what the guarantees show, then the non-guarantees may or may not perform. So don't count on them from the start. Count on the guarantees, they'll always be there. So now we have a couple next steps for you. If this has intrigued you or you're interested in learning more, I want to share a couple resources with you. So uh, first, you can, all you can contact our office and get an appointment with us. We have a complimentary strategy session where we'll talk with you about you what you want to accomplish with your finances and then see if life insurance might be a good uh, addition to the financial structure that you already have set up. Um, and if it is, we're we can help you get that policy in place. So here's uh, our number up on the screen. You're welcome to take a picture of it. The QR code also on the left is the direct link to go to uh, the page that will help you get an appointment. So again, you just have to open your camera up and that QR code should load or you can take a picture and call us later. The next couple things is that we have a couple books that my dad wrote. So How to Build Sustainable Wealth, it's here. This is his newest book. It came out last year. And uh, it's available on our website or available here. It's $18. And this book, which is Prescription for Wealth, this is the first book he wrote and has a lot of our, our initial story in it and how he started using whole life insurance uh, with the things that he needed uh, in his life. So this was 15 years ago when we first got started. So this book is available also here for $10, but it's available as a free download on our website as well. So here's a couple links for that. Uh, the book available on the QR code there. And again, if you're interested in an appointment with us, there's the schedule link as well. We're going to be around for a few minutes afterwards. If you have any questions or want to talk to us, we'll be outside with the books. Um, and do we have Dutch? Do we have time for a little Q and A? Or we do, not. we do not. Okay, so we'll be out. We'll be out there. If you have any questions, if you have, uh, if you want to get the books as well. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Rad Podcast, an exploration of wealth. For more information, please visit our website, www.raddiversified.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. 